Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Marion Tupi details a famous wager that illustrates the power of human creativity. Ilya Soman details the president's dubious national emergency claim at the southern border. Law professor Rachel Elise Barco details the problems and solutions to our broken criminal justice system. And attorney Alan Dickerson shows how your rights are endangered when regulators go after your political speech online. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Much of the debate surrounding illegal immigration, immigration more broadly into the United States, isn't particularly productive. People dig in. Uh, Some of the people who are most opposed to immigration seem not to understand the subject matter uh, very well. But uh, David Beer and Alex Narasta, our immigration policy analysts, have uh, done yeoman's work uh, trying to at least inject some new ideas to make the immigration system into the United States more rational. They have a new paper out uh, entitled Three New Ways for Congress to Legalize Illegal Immigrants. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having us. So let's begin with uh, these. Well, let's begin with some of the older ideas first, because I think they're instructive. Uh, An idea that had been proposed earlier within the walls of this building was uh, the idea of state-based visas. That is, states would be able to uh, essentially hold their hands up and say, we would like this many uh, immigrants for our state, please, to sort of take that debate out of Washington, D.C. And that idea at least had enough traction to be introduced into uh, legislation, but uh, really hasn't gone much beyond that. Is that about right? Well, we really look at the state-based ideas as one for determining future flows of immigration Um, as opposed to dealing with the people who are already here, which is really what this research is about. Um, You know, how do we address illegal immigrants who've already set up residence in the United States, they've already spent some time here, they're already integrated into the labor force. What do we do about that population rather than how do we bring in new legal immigrants into the country in the future. And Dave, as you mentioned before we started recording, we don't know exactly how many illegal immigrants there are. And if we truly cared about finding out, legalizing them is perhaps the best way. Well, you know, I would say that the estimates that we have are are pretty close within a range. And we know this. What What is that range? Well, it's it's between 10 and 12 million um, people. And the, one of the reasons why we know this is be, actually because of the amnesty that we did in 1986. It allowed us to, to you know, check our estimates against reality. And one of the things I'd like to say is about the 10 to 12 million. You know, you hear folks like uh, on Ann Coulter or others talk about how there's 25, 30, 40 million uh, illegal immigrants here. If that's true, then they are probably the least fertile demographic in the history of the United States, as we know pretty well how many children are born here in the United States, especially how many are born to American citizens and legal residents. And the remainder is what is born to illegal immigrants. So unless you're willing to think that virtually all these folks, um, the vast majority of them have no kids uh, or are sterile or otherwise choosing not to start families, um, then this range of 10 to 12 million, you know, give or take a million maybe on either side of that makes a lot of sense. And also committing no crime in the United States, because we also know how many immigrants are being convicted of crimes and locked up in the United States. And if the number of illegal immigrants was dramatically higher, their crime rate would be the lowest 
of any demographic in the history of the world. All right. Sounds good. So let's uh, start with uh, some of these ideas. Uh, Alex, uh, give us the first one in general. This is a not really a Sophie's choice, but it's a choice that uh, would be definitely not a Sophie's choice, uh, <laughs> but, but but it's a policymaker's choice. Uh we took a look at a lot of these previous immigration reform proposals that have come out. You know, the latest one, the big one was in 2013, a comprehensive bill. And the thing with this bill and the previous ones that were also comprehensive is they were basically all the same. They all basically included a portion to increase legal immigration, increase enforcement, and then for what we're talking about here, legalize or pass an amnesty for some amount of the legal immigrations in the United States. And we took a look at this and like this amnesty proposal and all of these is very similar. It's a one size fits all proposal. It's a path to legalization and then eventually to citizenship. So we thought, why not have a two tiered type system? We have a very expensive route for an illegal immigrant who's given a legalization to become a citizen to get a green card, make it a very long time, expensive, difficult, but then also offer another path that is just a path to a permanent work permit, but they can never use that to become a citizen. They can use that to work here. They can use that to live here, but they can't sponsor uh, a lot of their uh, relatives that come over. Um, it's just like a permanent work status and make that a lot cheaper. And I suspect, based on at least some previous evidence, that the vast majority of people who will get legalized under this program would choose the cheaper alternative path to a legal status just uh, without citizenship, just to give you sort of um background about this, the last time we had a major legalization in 1986, um, only about 41% of those who were legalized under that chose to become an American citizen. The majority were fine being a lawful permanent resident and working here. If you change those costs a little bit, make it more expensive to become a citizen, cheaper to get a work permit, I think the majority would choose that. All right. So uh, as we are in Washington, D.C., there are politics to all of these things. And this seems to, and maybe you don't agree, scramble the political alliances when it comes to getting people to come into the United States. Because I would imagine that uh, pe uh, political parties or political groups that would like to attract citizens into the United States for the purposes of courting them, for the purposes of electoral uh, success, um, that this sort of, I don't know, splits that baby. It splits that baby. I mean, this is just for the folks who are already here illegally. But what it really does is it gives, it puts liberals in a funny position because a lot of them want to legalize illegal immigrants um, for principled reasons, but they also like the <laughs> uh, potential electoral consequences down the line. Um, this basically says, hey, if you really care about this population, um, this is a way to let them choose for themselves individually whether they want to pay a more expensive path to citizenship or if they're fine living in security and working but not ever getting those uh, political rights. On the other hand, it also satisfies some um, Republicans, who, like, for instance, Senator Ted Cruz and others, who said that they were supportive of some kind of legalization. They were just said that they were opposed to a path to citizenship. This will allow us to test to see whether liberals really care about 
the rights and the livelihoods of these folks and whether conservatives are okay with legalizing them without a path to citizenship. And and for context, in twenty th- in the 2013 bill, you had about a 13-year path to citizenship. It was a one-size-fits-all approach. And the Congressional Budget Office that looked at the proposal said there were so many requirements and it was so costly that you would have a significant portion, about 3 million of the 11 million illegal immigrants in that year would not be eligible under the provisions of the legislation. So they created a path to citizenship, but it was going to be one that was unattainable for a significant portion of that population. So the question for liberals is, are you so committed to forcing everyone into that path to citizenship that you're willing to leave out a large portion of the uh, immigrant population that would choose to legalize their status and and come out of the shadows. So for this first idea, this choice between uh, a relatively quick, relatively cheap, uh, permanent legal status to work and enjoy many of the benefits of of being in the United States versus this longer, more laborious, expensive process of becoming a U.S. citizen. What is the what is the fiscal uh, impact of of that? In general, well, we didn't run a fiscal analysis of this, but based on just a thumbnail sketch, then yeah, a thumbnail sketch is uh, under the way that we propose this, the permit, the work permit that folks would get under this system would not be would not make the worker eligible for means tested welfare benefits. It would not make them eligible for entitlement benefits. Would have made them eligible for any of those benefits. So the um, fiscal impact of this would be. Uh, positive. It would be on the positive side if the research from the National Academy of Sciences and any of the other fiscal cost analyses out there are in the indication. This would be more positive than um, most of the lower skilled immigrants who come on an LPR status or lawful permanent residency and get uh, citizenship. And then after this is implemented, um, it seems like the lever you move back and forth is the relative price that you assign to Uh, going through the longer process of citizenship. That's right. How much do you value becoming an American citizen and getting those attendant additional rights of being able to serve on a jury, being able to vote, uh, and in some cases, being able to work in a handful of government occupations? And in some places, um, also uh, firearms ownership, although um, there are different rules on that in different states. Uh, A lot of like H-1Bs, for instance, like uh, work permits uh, holders can purchase a firearm. But um, it makes it a lot easier if you want to be a gun owner in America, if you're an American citizen. All right. The second idea uh, is rolling legalization by allowing long-term illegal immigrant residents to legalize their status on an ongoing basis without an application cutoff date. What does that mean, Dave? Well, if you look at the prior proposals that's you know been on the table since 2013 and 2006 and 2007, those debates all had we're going to had this really I think fantasy that we are going to have an amnesty that we're never going to have another illegal immigrant in the United States again, and so we'll never have to revisit this question at any point in the future, and so we're going to legalize everyone who arrived before a certain date. And then after that, you know, we're just going to bring the, you know, the army and the, you know, the government agents to everyone's door and that's going to cure the problem. Yeah. These amnesties seem like pressure valves that are immediately put back in place once the amnesty is done, right? The pressure begins building again. Exactly. And so this idea 
really borrows from aspects of current law as well as um, some principles that the United Kingdom has has done well in that rather than having a you know specific cutoff date you know 2013 you know 2017 anyone who arrived before that date would be eligible it looks at how long has someone been in the country and it is not realistic to expect that people 10 years from now will say to someone who arrived today and lived for 10 years in the United States being part of our society, having children here and so forth, and say to them, we're going to kick you out. We're going to send the government agents. This is really what undermines, from a conservative perspective, you know, one people who want the law enforced should actually support this idea. Because if you're removing people that the public doesn't want to see uh, deported from the equation, then public support for immigration enforcement will naturally rise. If they know that all of government energies are just to remove people who've been here for a short period of time, public support will increase. So the idea is really we're going to have a set period of time. And after that uh, period of time has passed, then we're going to allow you to become a permanent resident in the United States. Essentially, everybody gets their own sort of cutoff date in a, in a sense. Right. Yes. So if you live in the United States for, for 10 years or 15 years, uh, really it's, you know, it depends on, on, you know, what Congress wants to do here. But ultimately, if you've spent a decade in the United States, we're going to remove you from the equation and focus all of our immigration enforcement resources on people who've been in the country and for less rem- than 10 years. And remove you from the equation by giving you a lawful immigration status. Just to be like super yes. clear about this, yeah. this is a way like for these folks to remain in the United States and to focus the remaining enforcement resources on those who are left. And this is preventing a, you know, duplicating this process over and over and over again in terms of amnesties because On the one hand, you're reducing the number of short-term illegal immigrants by focusing all of our enforcement resources there. And at the other end, not, uh, uh, you know, legalizing the or rather legalizing the people who've been in the country for 10 years or more. That way, it's at both ends limiting the size of the problem. This may be a small thing, but how do you propose the government... uh, come to understand how long a person has been in the United States. Well, well and a lot of and a lot of previous um, uh, amnesties the government has done, they rely on documentation of a certain kind provided by uh, the immigrants seeking legalization. So they will look, they will try to get, uh, for instance, records of like leases, school records, uh, driver's licenses, library cards, you know, utilities bills, um, maybe previous visas that that person has held in the United States lawfully. I mean, there's there's a wide amount of documentation. There, There's a, you know, this is related to that in a sense, because there has been some opposition to allowing illegal immigrants in the United States to uh, get driver's licenses, which I'm sure you guys would agree is is boneheaded if you care about things like having insurance payout when uh, somebody is in an auto accident. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is really, you know, a a proposal that would be forward looking 
it would deal with the pro problem now. The biggest portion of the problem, if you look at the share of illegal immigrants who've been in the country for more than a decade, it's now at two thirds of the total population, according to estimates. So, I mean, that is you're taking care of a significant portion of the of the population, as well as um, going forward, making sure that our immigration enforcement resources are used against people with less equity in the United States. Okay. The third idea that you all have proposed in this paper, slowing chain immigration by limiting legalized immigrants' ability to sponsor family members from overseas for lawful permanent residency or green cards. What it, That seems clearly to, to deal with this concern that is it escapes me what the actual concern is about uh, so-called chain migration, where supposedly, or at least this is, seems to be how the argument goes, you will have essentially an endless series of uh, immigrants coming to the United States, uh, sponsoring relatives, then those immigrants sponsor relatives, and so on and so on. This is the least favorite of our proposals, but we have to throw in, I think, um, things that we genuinely think would be uh, big compromises to try to get the conversation going. So the ideas actually deal exactly with what you think, which is that um, chain migration is a, uh, according to some members of Congress and, and the president, a problem. And the argument that legalized immigrants could just sponsor their family members and that's going to be like a permanent benefit um, earned by a legalization is something that a lot of folks think is unfair. So this is a way saying like, listen, we're not going to restrict chain migration for any other groups of people or any other legal immigrants. But for those who are legalized, they are going to be limited at least in their ability to for some period of time, at, at a minimum for some period of time to earn legal status. Interestingly, we got this idea from a law that Congress passed in 1982 uh, called the Virgin Islands Non-Immigrant Alien Adjustment Act, which allowed the uh, guest workers in that island um, who had basically all become illegal immigrants uh, to become legal to get permanent residency, but not to sponsor any of their family members. Um, it was a pretty small program at that time um, uh, in, in the low numbers of thousands, uh, but that shows that I think Congress has been amenable to this in the past. And they could sort of dust off some of these provisions, provide it to a longer or a larger group of people today. So uh, in general. So if I could add one more thing to that, the uh, people who are legalized should be able to sponsor at least their immediate relatives, like their uh, minor children, their spouses, things like this. Because otherwise, if, if you don't do that, then you're just going to get more illegal immigration. But we're talking about sort of expanded family members, you know, their siblings, um, adult children, parents, things like that. All right. Um, why has there not been an amnesty since 1986? Well, there's a there's a definitely a long answer to that. Uh, the short answer is that Congress has not wanted to legalize um, people in the United States, and the you know the the argument is that the 1986 amnesty didn't quote unquote work. Uh, because it ultimately, after 1986, we had a huge surge in the number of illegal immigrants in the United States. Over the course of the 90s, it, it grew from about 3 million to over 10 million, and ultimately over 12 million by 2007. So you had a huge increase in the illegal immigrant population. The uh, opponents of the amnesty blamed the amnesty, 
rather than the legal immigration changes that never came that would have provided people a legal pathway to enter the United States in the future. And that was what was part of the missing equation in 1986 is we legalized these people, but then we said, well, we're just going to crack down on the border. We're going to hire all these border patrol agents. We're going to build fences. We're going to do a lot of the things we currently hear are going to solve the problem. But then we didn't do anything to make it possible for people to enter legally. It seems like there's been a, uh, as our former colleague Dan Griswold uh, used to say, once we've dealt with this prohibition problem, then we can talk about legalizing alcohol. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Once we've dealt with these bootleggers, I should say. And, and it's a problem that we, it's an argument that I hear in the space of immigration, but I don't hear it very often. Not just prohibition, but uh, when the speed limit was raised, the national speed limit, 55 to 65, I didn't hear, I've never read anybody who said, oh, we need to catch all the speeders first. Uh, prior to the debate on this tax law, um, I never heard anybody say we had to catch every single tax cheat before we cut taxes for people uh, across the board, both policies that I support. And if the law is bad and producing bad outcomes, I think we should change it before we ruin more people's lives by trying to enforce it, desperate gamble of enforcement that just won't work. And it speaks directly to cred the credibility of the law itself. I think if we want immigrants and Americans to respect American laws, the laws need to be respectable. And current American immigration law is not. These three proposals are a way to at least solve or severely limit problems from the current population of illegal immigrants, which is a big part of the immigration debate. Okay. Also, um, if people think there's chaos on the border, they don't want to liberalize immigration. They don't want to legalize people here. They also don't want to increase legal immigration. So anything, any policy that increases that those perceptions of chaos, of lawlessness, of madness going on the border, things like caravans, things like the government's response to caravans by uh, tear gassing them, um, things like, for instance, building a fence and putting up a camera that takes a picture of everybody crossing that fence, um, even if the numbers are down 90% from their highs or down a lot. That creates a perception of chaos independent of reality. And the more that people think there is chaos, we think, relative to thinking that everything's orderly, the less they will support a liberalized policy. And you can actually see this if you go to Canada or Australia, for example. These are two countries that have much more expansive legal immigration policies than the United States does relative to their size. So Canada is 10 times smaller than us, but they allow a flow as a percentage of their population that's more than two times greater than the flow into the United States is. So you're really talking about two countries that are, um, you know, in, in the case of Australia, it's essentially an island. So they don't, don't have a border problem uh, as much as the United States does. And Canada sort of isolated as well they don't have as many illegal immigrants because people have to cross into the United States first. So there's not as much of an incentive for them to then cross into Canada. And so what we see in both of those countries is much higher legal immigration flows and the, the just general tone uh, and rhetoric of the debate 
in those places is uh, less uh, severe as in the United States. And when you take a look at places like Australia, when they have problems with, say, boat people landing on their shores and asking for asylum that way, uh, public opinion turns against legal immigration. But then it goes right back up as soon as they treat those people um, you know, very brutally and harshly by putting them on these prison camps on islands, which is a terrible policy. But if your perspective or your, your goal is to maximize public support in Australia for legal immigration, that seems necessary to do to remove that perception of chaos. Well, let's go back to the data here just for a, a minute. Um, when we talk about uh, legalizing illegal immigrants and then accounting for future flows of uh, otherwise would-be illegal immigrants into the United States. What do we know about the economic impact that they have uh, upon their arrival, either legal or illegal immigrants? So the, the talk about just the the impact, I guess, of what would happen for these folks who are legalized after they're legalized in the United States, we can expect a pretty good wage increase for them. So we published a paper in 2018 looking at the wage uh, convergence, wage assimilation of immigrants relative to native-born Americans. And we did a special sort of side calculation on that, looking at, well, how much less do illegal immigrants make relative to legal immigrants in the United States? And we found that it's about 11.3% lower. And that's because it's illegal for them to work in the United States. Um, it's risky for employers to employ them because there is some amount of labor uh, of enforcement uh, that cracks down on employers. So they have no negotiating position, no negotiating position, but they are super mobile too, uh, because they they don't have access to welfare. So the re reservation wages, uh, also tend to be a little bit lower because they can't, you know, like you or I become welfare queens forever. Uh, should we choose to as native born Americans? I of course would not as a principal libertarian, but we have the option to, and these folks do not. So the idea is that by legalizing these folks, they will have more bargaining power. They will, will not be uh, a legal risk for employers to employ them. They will have some legal guarantees. They will able be able to switch jobs and change jobs more easily. And that will have sort of knock-on effects throughout the rest of the economy that are positive. And the other important thing to understand is is there's really not an incentive to invest in your human capital if you think that all of the benefits of that investment could disappear tomorrow by being deported. And so when you're, especially when you're looking at younger illegal immigrants, you know, the dreamers we talk about, uh, people who had grown up in the United States um, from a young age, the incentives for them to go on to college and to invest in their education are much lower than it is for a U.S. citizen who knows that they're not going to be removed from the country. They know that they can access any labor market. Um, or you know, try to buy capital to build something of their own. Exa yes, exactly. So, you know, investing in home ownership or, or any of the, the physical capital things. Um, again, this is, this is a, a, a significant drawback uh, from having a big uh, illegal immigrant population. So with respect to American workers, though, this what are the what are the broad effects that we can say with confidence? So the broad effects with confidence is that these folks are already here. They're already working unlawfully. The amount of labor market competition that will exist is going to be actually probably less than what it currently is because these folks are not working in the black markets as much. They're not competing in the black markets as much. Employers cannot say, 
um, as easily rob wages from them um, without any kind of legal recourse. So I would I would suspect that labor market competition, labor market outcomes for legal American workers uh, would improve as a result of illegal immigrants who are already here working being able to work lawfully. And the counterfactual when it comes to you know removing this population who's who is uh, already working in the United States. We actually had a good experiment with that in the 1960s when Congress canceled the Bracero guest worker program. You had, in some instances, about 20% of the farm labor population was being provided by this uh, th- this group of guest workers from Mexico. And uh, the study that was done by economist Michael Clemens and, uh, and his colleagues uh, really demonstrated that the farms that had the highest proportion of guest workers that were you know ultimately removed from the country or or banned from re-entering the following year did not see any wage benefit as a result uh for US born Americans as a result of that uh of that policy change all right we're going to leave it there. Uh, again, the the paper is entitled Three New Ways for Congress to Legalize Illegal Immigrants, and it's available right now at Cato.org. When you take the rules that govern political advertising designed for television and try to apply them to the dramatically different ways that we communicate online, you're asking for trouble. Moreover, you're implicating individual liberty. Alan Dickerson is legal director at the Institute for Free Speech. At the Cato Institute's Big Tech Conference in March, he detailed just how cumbersome online regulation of political speech can be. What you're going to see here is that this is not the, the situation you would have in, you know, you go down to your local TV station, you purchase your, your political ad, and they run it in a particular time slot. This is a highly complex market where uh, the one-to-one correlation between the purchaser of the ad and the eventual platform putting the ad out to a final consumer is not necessarily linear and it's not necessarily clear. Um, And that's important for a few reasons. Um, One is because uh, it's it's difficult to, again, apply that sort of linear model of you've got a candidate or you've got a nonprofit or someone else who wants to speak to a particular consumer in a particular geographic area they purchase the ad, good to go, easy record keeping. It's not like that. It's this. It's highly complex. Um, and secondly, it's that you know we also have a change in how ads work. Um, and there's a lot of people in the room who could talk about this better than I could. But you know, for instance, in the way we regulate political ads generally, you know, you'll have things that are geared towards the broadcast space. But the range of potential ads are much larger here. I mean, how do you how do you ad- uh, adopt an on uh, on publication disclaimer, which may be required, you know, those you know, stand by your ad type provisions in an ad that's designed to fit on an Apple watch. Um, you know, the range of potential time is very different in the sense that you have, instead of just your standard 15 and 30 second ads that you might get on a cable station, you have, you know, six second ads and you have 90 second ads and you have 90 minute ads. So the range of, of potential products that a regulator has to adapt regulation to is quite a bit larger and, as importantly, changing constantly. So what does all this mean for free speech? Uh, I've got a couple just general thoughts here. Uh, the first is that the, the instinct to regulate at choke points has particular dangers. Uh, again, go back to the broadcast analogy. There are obvious places there where you want to regulate. 
You want to regulate at the point of sale when the person's coming into the broadcast station and that broadcast station is accepting the money, putting the ad out, and keeping whatever records are required. Well, as we saw in the previous, in the previous slide, that's harder here because the connection between that original purchase by the person who wants to do the speaking and the eventual seeing of the ad by the person to whom one is communicating is not necessarily direct. There's not necessarily that meeting of the minds. And so there's a real danger of, um, there's a real danger of, of chill there because uh, the costs can get out of hand really quickly. Second is that you know, if, you, if you treat an ad as though it were a TV ad, you're, you're eliminating all of those products that don't necessarily conform. The example I use here is, the, again, the standby your ad provisions that exist in federal, federal regulations. So if you take out a TV ad, you have to say things like, I'm so-and-so, and I approve this message, et cetera. Well, what do you do, again, about that Apple smartwatch little image? You know, if, if you are literally barred by the law from running an ad that doesn't include something that is technically impossible in an internet context, you have essentially banned that form of advertisement. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily intended in a regulatory regime, but it is a, a downstream effect that can happen. And similarly, and, and I think this is really the crux of what I'm hoping you'll take away from this, is that there's a real danger of, um, there's a real danger of chill. And by chill, what I mean is the ways in which government action will lessen the amount of speech out there in the market, not necessarily by banning it, not necessarily by directly taxing it or creating a licensing regime or doing any of the sort of direct things we think about as censorship, but by creating subtle and insidious costs that make the speech simply not worth it. And that's especially dangerous here because of the amounts of money that are involved in two senses. One, if you're Google and you're dealing with untold billions of dollars in ad revenue over a 10-year period or over a four-year election cycle for the presidency, this is a drop in the bucket. And if the regulatory requirements for accepting these ads outweigh that economic gain to your corporation, you're just not going to take the ads. And that's not a hypothetical. This has happened in at least two states where Massachusetts, not Massachusetts, sorry, don't want to malign the wrong state, uh, where Washington and Maryland uh, both impose very substantial burdens, uh, Maryland I'll talk about in a moment, uh, that essentially made Google exit the market. And if Google, Google decided not to sell political ads in those two states because of the regulatory burdens. And if Google isn't in a position to shoulder the regulatory burdens, again, as we'll see, you're essentially wiping out an entire way of communicating between, uh, between whether it's politicians or parties or, or advocacy groups and the American public. Um, and that's precisely the sort of chill that those of us who are First Amendment types worry about. So I'm gonna leave that and go on to the big elephant in the room, or I suppose the bear in the room. Um, a lot of this, a lot, a lot of the instincts for uh, regulating come out of, I think, a fear about uh, untoward influence of one form or another. Right now, that is Russia or other um, national security, uh, shall we say, adversaries. I think they call them near-peer adversaries if you read the national security strategy. Um, I, I think that there's, there's a couple points to be made here. I mean, one is that uh, if you're talking about the national security or intelligence apparatus of a major international power, we can wonder whether disclosure regimes enforced by the Federal Election Commission's ability to civilly sue you um, or the ability of a, of a Maryland electoral regulator to require particular disclaimers on ads is going to be a particularly effective deterrent. Um, my own view is that if you want to stop Russia from influencing our elections, you stop them from doing that the same way you stop them from doing anything else. 
You use the national security apparatus, you sanction them, you engage in intelligence operations, you build up uh, military deterrence in a way that makes it no longer worthwhile. Because the alternative, regulation at deeply granular levels of political speech, has real, um, real effects on Americans' ability to speak with each other that are out of proportion to, to, the, to the advantages from a national security standpoint. So here are a couple of things that people talk about. Uh, one, you know, requiring that ads that, that talk about public affairs or elections are paid for in United States dollars. Um, I'm going to pretty much gloss over that one because uh, it, it is possible to change rubles into dollars. And I feel fairly certain that the intelligence apparatus of the Russian Federation is aware of how to do that. Um, Micro-targeting, I think, is a harder one. Uh, this is, you know, the idea that you would regulate based on who's going to eventually see the ad. Uh, I think the concern here is that a lot of the activity that you're talking about here is not necessarily paid ads. You know, it is things that are organic activity that's point out, not necessarily vote for or vote against this candidate, but stuff about issues of public affairs. Um, a lot of what Russia did in the last election was not paid advertisements. A lot of it was directed at Black Lives Matter issues or other, um, uh, shall we say, pressure points in, in the current uh, debate within the American Republic on how we want to govern ourselves. And uh, I think there's a danger potentially in regulation that forces the creation of databases and um, uh, regulatory agency approaches that by, necess by necessity would require the building of um, specific capacity directed at those interest groups, figuring out who belongs to them, figuring out who's being targeted in that way. Uh, I'm not sure those are lists that some of us who care about civil rights want necessarily existing. It was decades ago, a wager over natural resources and their prices, and it shows how resourceful minds use knowledge in society to improve the world and spread prosperity. Cato's Marion Tupi detailed that wager and its implications at a Cato Institute event in Naples, Florida in March. So we are going to start with this handsome fella. 50 years ago, Stanford University biology professor Paul Ehrlich published a highly influential book called The Population Bomb. The early editions of this particular book included a now famous statement, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. That didn't happen. Ehrlich, who is still alive, however, continues to believe that population growth and the concomitant rise in consumption must lead to environmental collapse, to exhaustion of natural resources, food shortages, and mass starvation. Only two years ago, he noted, at the Vatican, of all places, you can't go on growing forever on a finite planet. The biggest problem we face is the continued expansion of the human enterprise. Perpetual growth is the creed of a cancer cell. So according to Ehrlich, population controls, including coerced sterilization of men and women, and financial penalties for having too many children, and consumption limits on the amount of energy that people can use must all be implemented in order to prevent a planetary catastrophe. The late University of Maryland economist and senior fellow at the Cato Institute, uh, Julian Simon, rejected Ehrlich's thesis 
he believed that there is no physical or economic reason why human resourcefulness and enterprise cannot forever continue to respond to impending shortages and existing problems with new expedients that, after an adjustment period, leave us all better off than before the problem arose. And in 1981, in a Cato book called The Ultimate Resource, Simon argued, and this is crucial, that human beings were intelligent beings capable of innovating their way out of shortages through greater efficiency, increased supply, and development of substitutes. In other words, we are not rabbits. We are not, um, we are not a single cell organism at the bottom of the ocean um, who thrive or die depending on the amount of food available. We can innovate our way out of scarcity because we apply our minds and our ingenuity to making resources more uh, abundant. So to illustrate the, two, the clash of the two visions between the two thinkers, look at the yellow line over here. Okay, So as population increases, that's the yellow error, Ehrlich believed that commodities are going to increase in price until eventually nobody can afford anything and we all die. Simon's view was that as you increase the population, again, the yellow line here, prices of resources are actually going to decline and they are going to become more abundant. So, after sparring with one another for most of the 1970s, Simon finally challenged Ehrlich to a wager. Ehrlich would choose any raw materials he wanted for any period of time longer than one year, and Simon would bet on the inflation-adjusted prices decreasing or increasing. Ehrlich chose copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. The bet was agreed on 29th of September 1980, with September 29, 1990 being the payoff date. In spite of the population increase of 900 million between 1980 and 1990, all five commodities have declined in price by an average of 57.6%, and Ehrlich mailed Simon a check for $576. So, today we are going to be asking, is Simon still right? Since Simon won his bet with Ehrlich, Ehrlich supporters have argued that Simon got lucky. Had his bet with Ehrlich taken place over a different decade, uh, the outcome might have been different. And indeed, some economists who ran these simulations have found that it was a bit of a flip of a coin. Depending on which decade you looked at, prices of, uh, of resources increased or decreased. So me and my co-author, what we wanted to do is to check out what the latest is. And what we have decided is that when it comes to a Simon Ehrlich wager, um, Simon was too generous. His conditions were too generous because Simon only looked at real prices of resources, which is to say inflation-adjusted prices of resources, but did not account for income growth, which grows at a faster pace than inflation. So let me just pause here for a second. Incomes grow at a faster pace than inflation. And that's because of productivity gains. When you started your first jobs, you were paid much less than when you were finishing your careers. 
Why? Because you became much more valuable to the company that hired you. Your productivity has increased. And the same thing that happens in the lives of individual people also happens in the lives of humanity as a whole. We become much more productive over time. We are certainly much more productive than uh, um, uh, the people in the Stone Age. Uh, we are much more productive than people 20 or 30 years ago because of access to computers and so on and so forth. So, it is important to remember that things can get cheaper in two different ways. The price can go down, and that's what Simon was talking about, but income can also go up. Put differently, what matters to the individual human being is not the real price of resources, but real price of resources relative to the amount of labor that's required to purchase those resources. And that's what Adam Smith said in 1776. The real price of everything is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. What is bought with money is purchased with labor. The powers of police, prosecutors, judges, and corrections departments almost seem to conspire to give many people a less than fair shake when they're accused of crimes. In her new book, Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration, Rachel Elise Barco provides stunning detail about how our criminal justice system desperately needs repair. She spoke at the Cato Institute in March. I think if you look deeply at where we ended up here, you do find that it's just the sum total of a lot of decisions by people who are very afraid of something. You know, there's something they see on the news or there's something that a politician has highlighted that has them concerned about their personal safety, um, worried about a high profile crime and, you know, what it may mean going forward. Um, and people act out of fear. They'll, they'll kind of do almost anything when people are afraid. And, and you do look over time at various policies that come out of that. And you know, some of it is, I would say it's both a combination of fear and also a desire to exact retribution for th you know, the, the bad crimes that you see. When people do horrible things to each other, people want justice done, and that's completely reasonable. Um, it's just that once that gets into the cycle of policymaking, if it's just purely based on emotion without stepping back and asking, oh, okay, wait, actually, how should we deal with this issue? You end up with very bad policies as a result of that. So, you know, if you were to think about, you know, the example I like from recent events in, in criminal justice, if you looked at the analog of the two planes that had their crashes, the criminal justice type response to that would be we would never fly again. It wouldn't be that we would ground two particular planes, we'd figure out what was wrong with them and how to fix them. It would be this is all unsafe and we have to get rid of it. And you know, so examples of that would be a jurisdiction has a system of parole. So to look and see how does a person change over time. If one person on parole goes out and commits a particularly violent crime that gets a lot of media attention, we have seen jurisdiction after jurisdiction in the United States just say, well, we got to get rid of parole. You know, just like we got to get rid of all air travel. You know, it's not something that was wrong with this person's parole profile or what this person received as supervision or how could we readjust. It's 
parole as a net needs to go away. And you know, you see that play out with countless criminal justice policies. So I agree with you completely that it's this idea that whatever the emotional reaction is to something then translates immediately with no intermediary into policy. Um, and, and that's not a really great idea if what we want to achieve is better public safety outcomes, because we often get rid of whole programs that work well on net, but just had you know one or two bad outcomes, but we'd want to keep them generally. Instead, because people are so um, outraged or nervous, uh, you just end up getting rid of, of everything. And then, you know, just to add one other point to what you said, which I think is worth emphasizing, is, you know, now at this point, with a system as big as the one that we have, um, there's a lot of people who have a stake in keeping it exactly the way it exists. So, you know, it builds up over time because people are afraid. And, and then as a result of that, you know, we build more and more prisons, we build more and more jails. Um, that means there's people who work there um, who rely on that. Um, their communities rely on that for sources of income and jobs. There are lots of prosecutors who are hired around the country, you know, thousands of them. Um, and it helps them to have certain policies in place to make their job easier. So a mandatory minimum sentence is a really great thing for a prosecutor because it helps them get cooperation from uh, defendants and it uh, helps them exact leverage so people plead guilty and they don't have to go to trial. They don't have to prove anything anymore. And so they like those things. When we think about scaling back so we could talk about the studies of mandatory minimums. They're not a good idea. Um, but there's a, now there's a lobbying force in place that wants to keep them there. So I would say it's those two things together. There's the kind of initial impetus where people are very nervous about something and politicians want to respond to that and, and they will propose what looks to be a quick, easy solution. Then that solution comes into place and then that in turn creates this dynamic of a whole bunch of people who want to keep it just the way it is, even if it's not working very well. The president has declared a national emergency on the southern border. In doing so, the president would like to effectively grant himself the power to begin spending money to build a proposed wall between the U.S. and Mexico. In March, Cato's Ilya Soman discussed that declaration, the National Emergencies Act, and problems with so-called national emergencies. I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the current national emergency declaration uh, by the president, and I'll explain why, although it certainly is not a slam dunk, I think this goes beyond what is permissible even under the fairly broad existing framework. Uh, but I also think there are significant problems with the framework itself, uh, and I'll end by discussing a few possible reforms. Uh, so. In February, the president declared a national emergency for the purpose of getting money allocated for his border wall that Congress had refused to give him. Uh, Deborah already gave you the wording of the statute, which says that during a period of a national emergency, the president may declare that emergency and then tap those uh, emergency powers. The question uh, that should be raised, the first question is, is an emergency anything the president says it is? Does his declaring it make it so? Or is he only allowed to declare it in a situation which counts as a sudden crisis, uh, an emergency in ordinary language, uh, in a way that we would normally use the word? And I think the second interpretation is better uh, for a couple reasons. One is that, in general, the Supreme Court has said, quite rightly, that most of the time we should interpret laws in a way in accordance with their ordinary meaning. And the ordinary meaning of an emergency is not 
whatever I say it is, or any problem that might arise, or any disagreement that the president might have with Congress about funding. It is rather a sudden crisis, perhaps even a sudden crisis that requires measures that cannot go through the ordinary legislative process. So just under ordinary meaning, that's the better interpretation. Uh, in addition, if you go the other way and you just say that the president can declare an emergency anytime he wants for any reason, then you raise a serious constitutional problem in that although the Supreme Court has been very permissive in letting Congress delegate power to the executive, they've said that there is a limit and that limit has, is that there has to be an intelligible principle for when the power might be used. What is it that counts as an intelligible principle? Not always easy to say, but at the very least, it's not an intelligible principle if the uh, standard is just whenever I feel like doing it or whenever the president wants to do it. That's not an intelligible principle, I think, even under the uh, permissive approach the Supreme Court has taken to these matters. Uh, and the court has also said that where possible, we should interpret federal laws to avoid constitutional problems. Here, the best way to avoid it is to require it to be a uh, a situation that's a sudden crisis, not just any problem that might arise in any situation. And just briefly, what is going on at the border is not a sudden crisis. Uh, undocumented immigration, even if you consider that to be a problem, uh, is actually at relatively low levels by historical standards. The other issue the president has raised is drug smuggling. Uh, most drug smuggling, some 80%, actually goes through ports of entry and therefore would not be affected by wall. Uh, so even if there is a crisis there, it has no relationship to the proposed remedy. Finally, if there really were a crisis, it's hard to understand how a wall could possibly be a remedy for it, given that a wall would take several years to build, even aside from the legal challenges to it. Uh, and therefore, it's a little bit like saying, we have a fire going, we gotta really stop it quickly. What's the remedy? We gotta build a new fire station uh, so that we can stop the fire more effectively. Clearly, even if it's a really wonderful, beautiful, excellent new fire station, it's not gonna put out this particular fire. Uh, and therefore, there's a very obvious mismatch between uh, the claim that there's an emergency and the claim that a wall is the solution for the problem. Secondly, even if you assume that he can declare an emergency, as Deborah pointed out, uh, it is uh, unlikely that uh, Section 2808 can actually be used to transfer money to build a wall because Section 2808 can only be invoked in situations, in emergencies that require the use of the military. Uh, and there actually is longstanding federal law barring the use of the military for most domestic law enforcement purposes. That includes immigration enforcement. It also includes drug enforcement. So I think this statute is actually, unlike the National Emergencies Act initial provision, uh, this statute is actually relatively clear. Uh, and it seems to exclude the uh, sort of thing that uh, Trump is trying to do. Finally, there's an additional issue, uh, which is that in order to get much of the property uh, that he would need to build the wall, Trump will need to use eminent domain to condemn private property, maybe even with respect to thousands of different properties. And eminent domain requires specific 
uh, statutory authorization. I do not think that authorization is present here. I can go into the issues in more detail and questions if people are interested. This is actually somewhat complicated, but I don't think the uh, authorization is quite there. That said, it isn't a slam dunk, particularly on that first issue of whether it's an emergency or not. Uh, and for that reason, among others, whichever way this litigation goes, uh, I think broader reforms are desirable. In particular, uh, one important reform is that it's important that the emergency no longer be indefinite, uh, that it should automatically terminate within a relatively short period of time unless Congress affirmatively endorses it. The Brennan Center recommends that in their list of reforms. A bill to do this actually was recently proposed by Republican Senator Mike Lee. Uh, he and his co-sponsors shade the emergency should end within 30 days unless uh, Congress affirmatively endorses it. You can argue about the particular time frame, but something like that I think is desirable. Uh, second, some uh, of the powers on the list of those that could be triggered uh, are ones that should just be abolished entirely, even if they do have uh, a congressional extension. Uh, I can't go through a full list, but one example is the power to test chemical and biological weapons on unwilling test subjects. That seems like a power that the government shouldn't have, to my mind at least. Another example is the so-called kill switch, kill switch I'm sorry, uh, for shutting down electronic media, including possibly the internet. Uh, that's also a dangerous power that we probably shouldn't leave lying around. Uh, and there are other examples as well. Finally, uh, a statutory vision would be good if it made clear that an emergency must be a sudden crisis, and also that in reviewing whether there really is an emergency or not, uh, the judiciary should not be deferential to the president. When you're invoking extraordinary powers as opposed to ordinary ones, there's a good case for the judges to hold the president's feet to the, hold the, president's feet to the fire as opposed to just taking his word for it. In its dealings with the broader world, has the United States been a force for human liberty? Should it be? And if so, how? In his new book, Peace, War, and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy, Christopher Preble traces the history of United States foreign policy and the ideas that have animated it and considers not only whether America's policy choices have made the world safer and freer, but also how those choices have influenced human freedom at home. Peace, War, and Liberty is available now through online retailers and at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.